Well, today we are in part two of our message series called Mountain Monologues, where we're talking about a time in history where Jesus climbed a mountain and a large group of people gathered to see him teach. Now, this has always been fascinating to me about Jesus, that no matter where he went while he was on this earth, people just flocked to him. There was this understanding that he was a Jewish rabbi, so naturally the, the Jewish people came, but he was so much more than that, and we understand that now, but people at the time didn't know that. The Jewish historian Josephus one time said that Jesus was a doer of wonderful works, of miraculous works, and people knew that about him. So not only were the Jewish community excited to come see him, and sometimes excited to to hear his words because they liked him, and sometimes for the opposite reason as well, but people outside the Jewish community, they were excited as well, and so they wanted to come and see what Jesus had to say. And it's always been interesting to me that Jesus didn't come simply just to encourage people to say happy things that made people feel comfortable. And sometimes he did say good things and encouraging things. But a lot of his teaching was and still is very difficult and hard to digest. Jesus didn't come to make things easier. He came for something much better than that. He came to give us new life. And so he talked about some very challenging things. But continually, people were excited to come and they wanted to know what would Jesus say and do next. Last week, we started this series and and Pastor Chris talked about the Beatitudes, which is how we are to become as followers of Jesus. And in that message, he said this, Jesus, Pastor Chris said this, Jesus didn't die and rise again to give us a better religion. He died and rose again to give us a whole new life. Some say that Christianity is simply about acting better or different, and the Bible is just a book of rules. And while there's some truth to that, there, there is a way that God wants us to live. It's the best way that he's created us to live. And the Bible does have some rules in it to help us to live the best life. But more than anything, Jesus came to give us the opportunity to become made new in him, to give us a new life with the Father of the universe, to have this relationship with him C.S. Lewis once said that it's, it's not like God came to make us better people. He came to make us new people. He came to give us a spiritual life so we could dwell with the Father on this earth. And this is why we celebrated Easter just last weekend. This is why it's such a big deal that he died and rose again, because through his death and resurrection, we now have the opportunity to come into a relationship with God that makes us alive in this spiritual sense, and we can live with God on this earth and forever. In order to do that, it takes our whole lives. It takes us to lay down our current lives to receive this new life. And the Sermon on the Mount, this teaching that we're talking about through the Mountain on the Monologues, talked a lot about how we can live this new life out and what our lives must look like once we give our lives over to Jesus. While we were in Israel this year, we went to two places where they have thought throughout history that this Sermon on the Mount took place. The first one we went to was Mount Arbel. For a long time, people thought it was Mount Arbel where Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because it's this humongous mountain. There's a, a nice like peninsula up top where a lot of people could be at. Or if you're like halfway up the hill, there's, there's a nice area where people can go. And I have a picture to show you um, because it, I mean, the picture's worth a thousand words. So this is my favorite picture from Mount Arbel. Sure, I could have showed you the top and, and uh, the big view, but I just like the cow 
casually grazing. Uh, he's just a wild cow, just hanging out, just eating right there next to us. I thought that was kind of neat. So I took that picture and I wanted to show you that one. And so we went to Mount Arbel. It was really beautiful. It was a strenuous climb, but we got to the top and, and we did some, so I was praying. I, I got to read through the Sermon on the Mount while we were up there, which was pretty cool. And then we went to the other location, which is where they generally believe the Sermon on the Mount actually happened. They believe it so much, they've renamed it to Mount of Beatitudes. The Beatitudes were the first teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. So we got to go there. We have another picture. This is Pastor Chris, our lead pastor, teaching about the Sermon on the Mount on the probable mount that the sermon was taught on, which is pretty cool. It's like one of those like bucket lists for pastors. I was sitting there. I was like, oh man, next time maybe. Um, but it was cool to be there. It's beautiful. But also it has really great acoustics. So you could see why someone would want to teach there with a large crowd. So there's, there was a fire recently, so you can see some of the wreckage of that. But there's a, a lot of area for people to sit. There's like a beautiful garden there. They make their own Pomegranate juice, if you're ever there, it's pretty good. Uh, if you're not there, it's just a fun fact to, to tuck away. But on that location, they have discovered that this is the most likely area where Jesus would have taught because of where he was before this and also because of the great acoustics. And I tell you that, and I show you those pictures, because it's important for us to remember that this was a real place, that Jesus really walked this earth. And these the words that we're going to be looking at that are detailed in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are really the words of the Son of God. Jesus taught these words on this earth at a real location. And we're going to go through them and see what Jesus has to say about our lives. So last week, again, Pastor Chris started us out with the Beatitudes. And today we're going to be focusing on four verses that talk about salt and light. It's Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. And the one point that comes out from those four verses that we're going to focus on today is our take-home point. It says this, Jesus' followers must positively impact the world. Salt and light is all about that how we must positively impact the world. Jesus once said that his followers must be like trees that produce fruit. Why? Because our, the fruit of our lives that impacts the world will show that we are followers of Jesus and salt and light is no different. When we follow Jesus, we must be different and our lives must impact the world positively. So let's go into Matthew 5. We're just gonna start with verse 13. If you have your Mountain Monologues booklet, it's page 11. If you, haven't, if you weren't here the last couple of weeks and you want one, you can just raise your hand. Someone will come and bring one to you. They're nice little booklets with all the, uh, uh, the whole Sermon on the Mount in there. But let's read the first verse right now. It says this, you are, and this is Jesus talking, you are the salt of the earth. What good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. Pastor Chris talked last week about how Jesus did talk to a large crowd, but he was really focusing in on teaching his disciples. So what Jesus is saying is that if you are one of my disciples, you must be salt. You have to act like salt. And what does salt do? Well, salt does three things well. It adds flavor, it preserves, and it creates thirst. It adds flavor, preserves, and creates thirst. And we're going to go through all three of those. So first, let's talk about adding flavor as Christians. If we are disciples, if we trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we must add good flavor to this world. There's a guy named R.T. France, and R.T. France studied the book of Matthew and wrote about it. And in his writings about the book of Matthew, he said this, disciples, if they are true to their calling, make the earth a purer and a more palatable place. 
but they can do so only as long as they preserve their distinctive character. If Jesus shows up, if Jesus dwells in us, it should show up in our lives. People should be able to notice that Jesus dwells in us. So we must ask the question of ourselves. Because Jesus dwells in us, if we do believe in Mesler and Savior, do we make the world a more palatable place? Is there an impact from our lives? A uh, synonym of palatable is appetizing. When people look at our lives, do they say, man, I want what they have. I want what, what they are experiencing. I want to know what makes them tick. The Apostle Paul talked about how we can live to make our lives appetizing, making the world more palatable. He says this to the church in Rome. He says, love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. These are challenging words, but what Paul is really saying is if we are living like Jesus, and that's the goal, to be like Jesus, then these things are going to show up in our lives. And if we are acting like that, if we're caring for people, if we are patient in, in life, if, if we're calm and we have peace in our lives when trouble's going around, people are going to look and say, I want what they, what they have. What is going on in their life? And they're going to ask us about who we believe in and what makes us different. So first thing, we add some good flavor to the world. The second thing is, is we prevent corruption. We add protection to the world against evil because that's what salt does. It keeps things from spoiling. And so we, if we are, again, followers of Jesus, we must prevent evil from happening to people around us. James, the brother of Jesus, talked about how we have this calling to prevent evil from coming upon brothers and sisters in the faith. He says it this way, My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. It's a wonderful call to be there for your brothers and sisters, to care for other people. I got to experience this in high school. In high school, I played the tenor saxophone in the band, and I played the tenor saxophone about as bad as you could play it. Like if you started the tenor saxophone today, you would be at my skill level after like three years. I wasn't very good. My director of the band, Mr. Armstrong, one time for marching band told me to turn my mouthpiece upside down and perform that way. If you've ever been around a woodwind instrument, it doesn't play that way. So he said that in front of our 300-person band. I was very embarrassed, but I did it. I flipped it upside down. I walked around as if I was playing. I played the notes. I played the notes, and, and I, I didn't do very well. Uh, one day, I was in class in concert band, and Mr. Armstrong was having us play, and then he noticed something. He had his great ear, and he noticed that something was off, and he narrowed it down to the French horns and the tenor saxophones. And he said, all right, well, French horns, tenor saxophones play. And so we played. And then he said, all right, tenor saxophones play. And that day, the tenor saxophone, sax uh, saxophone section was just me. Um, we have three of us, and two of them weren't able to play that day. So it was me. I was the problem. And he narrowed it down, 300 people. And he's like, it was tenor saxophone. So he said, all right, tenor saxophone. He didn't embarrass my name, but he said, tenor saxophone section, play by yourself. And I was like, oh, man, this is going to be bad. So I played, and it was horrible. And he said, why don't you, Alex, just try it again? He was being pretty patient with me. 
and I lost my cool. I felt so embarrassed and angry that I yelled at him, I called him names, I cussed him out in front of the band, and I kind of felt smug in that moment until he told me to get down, put my instrument away, and sit next to him for the rest of the band, which is pretty embarrassing. Uh, so I did, I sat next to him, and I felt awful. Until as people started leaving, my friends were like, yeah, like, good job. Like, he needed someone to talk to him that way. Like, yeah, you really let him have it. And then I, I was on this whirlwind of emotion, all right? And I started to feel like maybe I'm okay. He took me into his office after class and said, you better shape up or quit. And I no longer was part of the band after that. Uh, but after... <laughs> That day, I went to my youth pastor. I was going to youth group, and, and Jamie, my youth pastor, I went to him, and I actually, at this point, had kind of rewritten the story from someone that shouldn't have done that to, yeah, I feel kind of good about this. I told this guy off as if he had done something wrong by asking me to play the instrument I had signed up to play. He was also my lesson teacher, which is much worse. Anyway, and so I just was bad. Anyway, so I came and told my youth pastor, Jamie, Jamie, you got to hear what happened. I was in band, and then I just let this guy have it. He embarrassed me like a jerk, and then I just told him off. And my youth pastor looked at me, and and I know in that moment, he could have, it was right before youth group, he could have just been like, oh, okay, like I'm preparing stuff, like get out of here. But instead, he looked at me and said, well, you didn't represent Jesus well at all in that moment. I just trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it was one of those moments where I was floored. I was pretty ticked at him at that moment. But as I reflected on it, it hit home. I wasn't at all. I didn't represent Jesus. And he, in that moment, he prevented me from falling into corruption, falling into evil, falling into that as a habit, as something that I did. And I, that was 19 years ago. I still remember that today because it's made such an impact on my life. Now, I haven't been perfect in that, mind you, but it does come up in my mind whenever it's, how do I react? Do I represent Jesus in this moment? How can I represent Jesus? How can I be salt in this moment? So Jamie helped me out. So Salt, what does it do? It adds good flavor. It prevents against evil. And the last thing is it creates thirst. If you've ever been at a sporting event and you've bought like the $10 nachos but haven't bought the $10 drink, you'll know this. Salt, because those nachos are salty, you're going to be thirsty after a little bit and you want to go and you can fork over that money because salt just creates now, whenever I first was reading that about when people were talking about the book of Matthew, I thought, okay, well, that doesn't necessarily apply to us. But then I read this from Lewis Barbary. I thought it was great. Jesus' followers would be like salt in that they would create a thirst for greater information. When one sees a unique person who possesses superior qualities in specific areas, he desires to discover why that person is different. And this is why people flock to Jesus. This is why he piqued their interest because he was uniquely special and they didn't know why. And so they went to him and they wanted to experience what he had to say and what he was doing, even when they disagreed with him because he was creating a thirst in people to know God. Now, you can write that off and say, well, he was kind of like a famous person. So like every famous person kind of creates thirst for people to come see them. But if you've met a famous person, you generally don't walk away being like, I want to know more about their life. I want to be like them. I want to, I want to know about like, their origin and what motivates them. Sometimes we just think it's cool. In high school, I was a really big fan of wrestling, Worldwide Wrestling Federation, now Worldwide Wrestling Entertainment, big fan. And there was this guy named Raven who I really liked. I don't know why. He wore a kilt and his name was the name of a bird. I don't know. And so I really wanted to meet him though. So he was wrestling nearby. And so I went 
and I, I got to meet him after his match. And I remember distinctly, he liked my T-shirt. I had a Spider-Man and the Hulk shirt, and this was before Marvel movies were big, so I was very nerdy. And he liked it, though, which made me feel cool. But I didn't walk away after meeting Raven being like, I want to be like Raven now. How do I learn how to wrestle? What do I do to be like that guy? I just thought it was kind of cool. But there was this one time where I did feel that way. I was in youth group again, and we had two youth group leaders. They only stayed for about a year. They're in their mid-20s. Names were Doug and Ron. Doug and Ron really liked wrestling as well. And they found out that I did, and so they invited me over to Ron's house one day to watch wrestling, to eat snacks, and we did so. But in the commercials and afterwards, we just talked. And through that, they talked about their stories, about how they love Jesus and how they're following Jesus And for me, as a 16-year-old, it was very important. I walked away from that being like, these guys love Jesus? And it impacted me, and it gave me this thirst to learn more about Jesus and to live my life for him. Funny enough, after I wrote this, three days later, I ran into Ron. I haven't seen him in years. I actually saw him, and we were like from here to, to the back of this room away, and then I kind of chased him down, which is weird. Um, The weirdest part about it is he went into the bathroom, and I... Could have waited, I don't know, but I thought like, I don't, I don't know. I walked in and we had an awkward conversation in the bathroom, but it was good. Um, sounds weird. I shouldn't have said that. Um, I probably shouldn't have done that, but it's fine. I, I walked in casually and I was like, Ron, and, uh, and he turned and said, DeRosa, what's your first name? And I said, Alex. And so I told him, like, he made a big impact in my life. And he said, I can't believe that. I was there as a 25-year-old guy for a year. How did I make an impact? And I said, you, loving Jesus at 25 and not being ashamed about that and wanting to pursue a relationship with Jesus and being a disciple of him changed the way that I viewed my life because I wanted to do that as well because I looked up to him. I thought he was cool. So he was this way that created some thirst in my life. He was salt. He was a disciple. So what do we do? To be like salt as Jesus' disciples means to add good flavor to this world, prevent corruption, and to create a thirst for Jesus. When Jesus was talking about salt, he also mentioned one other thing that I'd like to talk about before we move on to light. He said that if we are salt, we must not be salt that loses its saltiness. Now, if you're in here and you're like a salt aficionado, you really love salt, you like the garlic salt and the Himalayan salt, the table salt, all the salts, you would know that pure salt doesn't lose its saltiness. However, salt that's dredged up, that's brought it from the Dead Sea does. And Jesus would have known this, and it was just common knowledge of that day. The rabbis knew it so much that they used the term wisdom and salt interchangeably. So they would say, you're wise. They would say it in the way that you have salt, or you're very salty. That's the way that they would say you're wise. And then they would use the term, you've lost your taste when you're being foolish. And so Jesus uses this same phrase for us. He's telling us, don't be foolish. Because if we're a foolish disciple of Jesus and we're not living in this way and impacting and influencing the world, we've lost that saltiness. We've lost that taste. And we're not really following him the way that he's called us to because we're not impacting the world. And Jesus' disciples are called to impact the world around us because we're supposed to be salt and light. This is what Jesus said about light. In Matthew 5, 14 through 15, he says, You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. It's easy to forget the importance of light until it's not there. A couple weeks ago, Saxonburg, most of Saxonburg lost its power. We actually 
couldn't have our Saturday night service because of that. At our house, we lost power from about noon till 7.30 at night. And when the night started to, to come upon us and the sun started to set, we got our two boys ready. Rachel, my wife, and I have uh, two boys, Ezra and Joel, another boy on the way. And we were like, all right, let's get our PJs. Just dropping that just because I'm excited about it, okay? Uh, just drop it. No, we don't know the name, but it's another boy. It's really exciting. Uh, we got them ready. They brushed their teeth. They got in their pajamas. And then we, we settled down in front of a lantern. We played some board games. I got a picture to show you. I, a lot of pictures tonight. Just wanted to be interactive. There we are. Uh, Ezra and I are in the back. We won the game. So that's why we're really pumped about it. So Joel, not as happy. That's okay. Rachel, not competitive. She's fine about it. Um, we, we were getting ready for bed earlier than normal. We were playing some games. And then Ezra went, why did we get ready so early? And he said, well, because pretty soon when the sun goes down and there's no power, the house is going to be pitch black besides these lanterns and these flashlights. But then it dawned on me, like, these boys have never been through a blackout. They've never been through a time where there was absolutely no light. And it's really hard to navigate even a place you're familiar with when there's absolutely no light. And Jesus knew this. And so he was saying to us that we are to be the people that helped others navigate through this very dark world. Jesus was called, and it is called, the light of the world. 700 years before Jesus was on this earth, the prophet Isaiah talked about Jesus and referenced him as the coming light into this dark world. He said it this way, God, the Lord, created the heavens and stretched them out. He created the earth and everything in it. He gives breath to everyone, life to everyone who walks the earth. And it is he who says, I, the Lord, have called you to demonstrate my righteousness. I will take you by the hand and guard you, and I will give you to my people Israel, and he's talking about Jesus here, as a symbol of my covenant with them. And you will be a light to guide the nations. You will open the eyes of the blind. You will free the captives from prison, releasing those who sit in dark dungeons. Jesus came to illuminate this world, and he calls us to do the same thing. He calls us to reflect his light like the moon reflects the sun. He calls us to reflect that in every area of our lives, everywhere we live, work, learn, play, everywhere, God calls us to reflect his life. Now, it's a reminder that if we only reflect God's light when we're at church, maybe on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning or at youth group on Tuesday or Bible Blasters on Monday or Celebrate Recovery on Thursday or whatever reason you are in or around a church. If we're only showing God's light in those areas, then we are simply a lamp that's underneath a basket and we have no use. So Jesus calls us to be different, to shine his light everywhere we go. How do we do that? Well, the Apostle Paul told this to the church in Philippi. He said, do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. This world desperately needs to see the light. It's like people are walking around with blindfolds on, not knowing where to go. But there is a way, a truth, and the light, the life coming from Jesus who has come to save people, to redeem people, to bring us into new life, and people need to know that and see that. And we could show that through our words and our action. That's what Paul was saying. Through both words and action, people will see Jesus through us. And this is precisely what Jesus was talking about when he ended this section on salt and light. He said this in, in Matthew 
5.16, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. It's important to know that our good deeds shouldn't shine for ourselves. I like an attaboy just as much as the next person, but our good deeds must shine so that people see God in us, so that people are notified that there's something different, and so people can see God and be told through our actions and through our words that God loves them, that he cares for them, and he came to redeem and to change their lives. So how do we do this? How do we live in such a way that we become light with our words and our actions? Well, I want to talk about four practical ways before we end today. Four practical ways, and there's probably plenty of them, but these are four practical ways to shine Jesus' light through actions and our words. The first one is don't complain. This is hard. It's harder than it seems whenever you even hear it. Don't complain. Paul said that to the church in Philippi. Pastor Craig Rochelle out of Life Church once said that if you can change your circumstances, do something about it. If you can't change your circumstances, change your perspective. So if we can change our circumstances, let's not complain about it. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get to work and do something about it. But if we can't, let's change your perspective. Let's ask God to give us some kind of idea for how we are to act or why we're in the situation. Paul told the church in Philippi, don't complain. While he was in prison for talking about Jesus, he had some credibility when he told us, so let's not complain. Darkness always comes from complaining. Light never comes out of complaining. You never walk away being like, I feel better now. Always brings about darkness. So don't complain. Second one, care for the person you're interacting with. What does that mean? When you're in a conversation, be completely there. Be entirely there. This is difficult. We have phones now that do so many things. It's so easy in a conversation, even if it's like a five-minute conversation, to like two or three times want to check your phone. Sometimes we even get like the phantom buzzes happen in your pocket, even when it like we're just so accustomed to like a vibration of like getting a notification. We're like, oh, I'm just going to check this. I just want to check the time. Ooh, uh, what did someone say? I actually thought about bringing the phone up to do like a demonstration of that, but I knew I would get distracted. So I, I left it back because it's easy to get distracted. But what Jesus did on this earth was he set an example. He never rushed around. He never let objects or things distract him for the mission that God had for him. He was there. He was present with people. So let's be present. Let's care for the person that we're talking to. And remember, if you're only thinking of what you want to say next in the conversation, you're not having a conversation. You're just two people talking really close to each other. Not the same thing. So care for the people you're interacting with. Three, pray for people. Pray for your loved ones. Also pray for people you can't stand. Whenever you pray for people that you hate, it helps your heart out because it's really hard to hate people when you're praying actively for their good and for God to do something in their lives. Don't pray like, I pray for this person I hate that they will come in a bunch of trouble. Pray for them that God will will do something in their heart and lives. One of my mentors, Ryan Paskey, once told me that years ago he made a decision that when someone asked him about a prayer request or in the conversation it came up that someone was talking about a need that should be prayed for, he would stop and say, can we just pray right now? He'd pray out loud, and he would do that for two reasons. One, because calling upon the name of Jesus brings about power. When two or more are gathered in his his name, he is there with us. But the second reason is because he just didn't want to forget later. It's so easy to forget. We get so distracted. So I adopted that, and I try to do that the best of my ability to, to stop a conversation, or once the conversation's done, just say, can we pray? And let me tell you, I've done that with people in my life that dislike Christianity, that don't believe in God, that don't like me talking about God, and every time they've said, sure, 
what could it hurt? And we prayed together. And I will be honest, the first couple times I've done this, it was a little awkward, but it's gotten better every time. And God is there in those moments. So take that time and pray. Last one, how do we show Jesus light with our words and our actions? Tell the truth in love. Jesus always brought the truth in love. Both of those together. Apostle Paul taught us this as he wrote to the church in uh, Ephesus. He said, instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. When he was saying instead, it was because previously he was talking about being like a baby in the faith. And then he said, now that we've grown, now what we do is we speak the truth in love. This isn't easy. But again, Jesus didn't come for ease. He came for something better than that. For me, this is difficult. I like to be liked. I like to make people happy. I like when people are comfortable. But there are times where it's much more important to tell them the truth, again, in love. Because what I care about way more than being liked is that people, when this world is over, know Jesus as Lord and Savior. That instead of going to hell, eternal separation from God, that they go to spend eternity with Jesus. That's more important than if someone likes me or if they're feeling comfortable right now. So at times, we got to tell the truth, but tell it in love. If we tell the truth without love or the love without truth, neither of those things are what Jesus did. Neither of those things shed the light of Jesus on this world. We need both of them together. So what do we do? To be a light as Jesus' disciples means to speak and to act as Jesus did. To speak and act. And so as we go through this life, let us be light through our words and our actions. Let us also be salt. Let us add flavor. Let's create this thirst. Let's prevent evil from falling upon people. Let's impact this world in a positive way for the kingdom of God. Let us be salt and light. And we could do that through this next step, which says, I will reflect Jesus' light on someone in my life this week. Let's reflect that light as a moon reflects the sun's light. And in doing so, others will see Jesus in our lives. If you're here today and, and you don't know the light of the world, who is Jesus? Thankfully, Jesus came for you because he loves you. He died and rose again so that you would come into relationship with him, so you'd get this gift of this new life. And here at New Life, we say it's as simple as ABC to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. A means that we admit. We admit that we're sinners, that we're not perfect, that we fall short of God's perfect standard. B, we believe. We believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Lord meaning owner and God. And Savior meaning rescuer from sin and death. And then we confess. We confess those sins, asking for forgiveness. And we commit to following Jesus with the rest of our lives. And ask the Holy Spirit to go in our lives and to move in us. We don't have to do this by ourselves. So right now, what we're going to do is we're going to pray. And if you've never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you to, to pray this prayer. To make it your own with your own words and your own heart and your mind. To say these words to the God of the universe who's in this room right now. Who loves you and wants to make you new. Let's pray. Dear God, right now, I pray that anyone in here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that they will say these words and they will join you in this relationship as you hear them, as we say, dear God, I believe you are the one true God and that your son Jesus came to this earth, died and rose again for me. I admit that I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. Forgive me of my sins. Bring me into a new life today. And Holy Spirit, fill me up. 
and live with me. Pray this in Jesus' name. And dear God, I pray for all of us in every area that we live in, in our families, in our friend groups, at work, on our teams, whatever it is that we do, wherever we go, God, I pray that you help us to be salt and light in this earth so that the world can be positively impacted so people can see you, so there'll be light that will illuminate the darkness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.